0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
1: An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.
0: Hey, everybody. We got a great one today. You know, for a change. Ann Applebaum and Frank Forr join me for our second year in review podcast. This time we tackle the world. Ann and Frank were both with me in September, Anne on Ukraine, and Frank on his great book, The Last Politician, about Biden's first two years in the White House. A lot has happened since I last spoke with them, of course, October 7th, and the war between Israel and Hamas, which, of course, is a good part of our discussion. As I was about to record this monologue, new charges against Hunter Biden— were announced for failing to file and, and pay taxes, tax evasion, and filing false tax returns. Biden has said that he had a period where he was struggling with depression and addicted to drug. You still have to pay your taxes. Now, Biden's lawyer said in a statement that his client had repaid his taxes in full two years ago. Now, I obviously don't know what the deal is, James Comer, a chairman of the House Oversight Committee, which is investigating Hunter Biden, had recently obtained bank records revealing that Biden's law firm, which had received payments from Chinese state-linked companies and other foreign companies in the past, made direct monthly payments to Joe Biden. Comer claimed the payments, quote, are part of a pattern revealing Joe Biden knew about, participated in, and benefited from his family's influence-peddling schemes, unquote. Turns out that these three payments of $1,380 each that occurred in September, October, and November of 2018 were actually for a 2018 Ford Raptor truck that Joe Biden had purchased and that Hunter was using. This was verified by a Washington Post forensic analysis. Now Comer's committee has subpoenaed Hunter to testify behind closed doors. And Biden says he wants to testify in public before the committee because he and his attorney believe uh, that uh, Comer has reason to distort his testimony like the chairman distorted the three car payments, to his dad. Comer and Jim Jordan, who chairs the House Judiciary Committee, said absolutely not. Now, you'll remember that Jim Jordan violated House rules by defying a subpoena to testify before the House January 6th Committee. Meanwhile, House Republicans say they're going to do an impeachment inquiry on President Biden. They had hearings on this uh, before, and uh, there was nothing their own witnesses, who they had called, said there was there was nothing there. This is a Republican House that has done nothing, nothing but take 15 ballots to elect their first speaker, get rid of him, because he used Democrats to pass a CR, a continuing resolution, to keep the government open, and then took three weeks to elect a right-wing religious zealot to replace him. Meanwhile, Republicans in the Senate are holding funding for Ukraine and Israel hostage to conservative demands that President Biden substantially choke off the number of migrants admitted to the United States while their asylum claims are considered. So we'll see what happens with that after you give a listen to Ann Applebaum and Frank Ford discuss what happened around the globe in 2023. It's a great one. You know... a change. Did you know that learning actually makes a sound? It's true. Listen. That's the sound of you learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. For example, let's say you're in Berlin and you want to visit the Fuhrer bunker. It's pretty simple actually. Wo ist der Fuhrer bunker? Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babel is better. One study found that using Babel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Here is a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. I, I want to get right into this because we're, this is a year in review of the world in geopolitics, and we're going to skip huge subjects like um, the world overheating. So no COP28, no hottest year on record. So screw our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren if AI doesn't get the great-grandchildren first. My focus will be on Ukraine and Russia, China, U.S. relations uh, with Taiwan and all the other various issues, Israel and Hamas in that region. And if we get to it, is democracy or autocracy winning around uh, the world? I know it's going to be a a mixed bag. And we'll talk about Putin and Biden and Trump and Yahoo and uh, Xi. Uh, Let's jump right into Ukraine. There, January 1st, there was the Battle of Bakhmut, and that was in the middle of that battle, and January, I can't remember, that was pretty, uh, the Russians kind of prevailed eventually, is that right?
2: The Russians prevailed in Bakhmut, but they did so after losing so many people and taking so much time that it was a kind of Pyrrhic victory. You know, in fact, Bakhmut was symptomatic. Bakhmut was really the only, the it, since the war began, it's the only moment when the Russians have managed to take back any territory.
0: But at what a cost. And now Pogrosian, Wagner Gruber, uh, was doing that battle. That was their yeah, battle, yeah. right? So that,
2: that battle was not run by the regular Russian army. It was run by Pogrosian, who led, leads a mercenary group, or led until his unfortunate plane accident. He led a mercenary group, and most of the people who were doing the fighting there were prisoners. Um, That's So right. it, was a, it was an unusual battle in that sense.
0: And they were just sent in there. These are prisoners, Russian prisoners— who the deal was, what, they get six months? If they survive for six months, they were freed. Is that so, some, something
2: like that? I think some of them got cheated and they, they weren't set free, but they were also used as, the, I mean, they're literally described as meat assaults. So they were used almost Jesus. as cannon fodder. I mean, they just threw hundreds of people at the Ukrainians, you know, and as, as Ukrainians have said to me, you know, it's not a very intelligent way to fight, but we do have to have a bullet to kill every single one of them. And there are a lot of them. Um, And the, as I said, the casualties were (laughs) astronomical and actually the achievement was pretty narrow.
0: Uh, Yeah. So, and what are the death tolls? What are the casualty tolls between Russians and Ukrainians uh, now? And I I guess include civilians. Do we know, have a rough estimate?
2: So everybody keeps their casualty numbers secret the best guess for the russians is something like it's something like 100 120,000 dead um and two or two times that wounded or so otherwise put out of battle um for the ukrainians it's thought to be lower it's you know more like sixty, seventy thousand, 70,000 but it's of course that's still a very high number yeah you know, this is a very high casualty war of a you know high, higher than any war the United States has fought in the last several decades. Higher than the Soviet war in Afghanistan, and counting civilian casualties is even more difficult because um, it depends who you count and how you count them. But it's it's also taken a huge toll on the civilian population and, of course, on the Ukrainian economy. So it's a it continues to wear away at Ukraine in that sense.
3: Al, can I weigh in with the question, Fran? Oh, uh, yeah. 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 Thank you. Very
0: so, generous. Oh, it's a question for Anne.
3: Not a question, no, why would I ask a question of you? I don't know. <laughs> um, Go ahead. And in War of Attrition, you eventually start running up against the hard number of bodies that can be sent into battle. In the relative manpower of Ukraine and Russia, who at this stage do you think is up against that that kind of grim upper limit of the bodies that they can throw at battle. At what point does Putin need to risk another call up, another conscription wave? Uh, you know, so where, where are we in just that sh- sheer human?
2: Yeah. So o- toll? obviously, the Russians have far more people. Um, you know, so if that's what it's going, if that's the only thing this war were about, they would win you know, they do have problems with quality of troops. There's going to be need for further mobilization. There's talk of him postponing it. They're having one of their fake elections in the next few months. And, you know, maybe it will happen after that. But remember that a war of attrition is about other things too. So it's about, you know, industrial capacity. It's about stamina. It's about politics. Um, It's even about, you know, how effectively can we target the Russian defense industry and make sure that the Russians don't have the ingredients they need to make explosives, which is something that lots of people are working on right now. The, the goal of the Western powers is actually the same as it's always been, which is to get Russia to leave Ukraine. Many people had hoped over the summer, and this I assume is where your questioning was going to get to yep. sooner or later, many people hoped over the summer that there would be a Ukrainian military victory of some kind that would convince the Russians to go home. Um, And the Ukrainians themselves hoped that. um, And that did not happen.
0: Can I ask you on that? Did we kind of blow it a little bit or a lot in terms of not supplying them with the weapons they needed earlier? You know, I know that Biden and others were worried about uh, Putin using, you know, tactical nukes. But did we were we too slow in in giving I mean, them what they yes. needed.
2: Yes. I mean, you know, there is no question that we were too slow. I mean, there's a sort of argument about why we were too slow. You know, was it because of es- we were afraid of escalation? Was it because we couldn't find, you know, our, our artillery hidden somewhere in Nevada? Was it because it all took a long time? You know, but yes, we were too slow. Ukrainians, you know, did not have what they needed to start, you know, an, an offensive Early enough in the spring that did give the Russians enough time to build these huge barricades and create these enormous minefields. Um, so yes, we were too slow. And there is a, you know, there are other nuances, and there are people are have different interpretations of why it went wrong. But the counteroffensive didn't succeed. And so, as I said, now we're looking at what are the other ways to convince Russia to leave.
0: Did did the dam uh, that was blown up did that have something to do with slowing down the spring or the non-existent spring offensive—it started in June, right?
2: Yeah, I think it, it may it may have been intended to. It may have been just another way of punishing the Ukrainians, and you know, trying to make them suffer so much that they'll stop fighting. That's kind of, that would be really my guess. It seems to have had different, you know, unpredictable effect on the war. I mean, you know, what had been the 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 lake behind the dam is now easier to cross, and maybe that's to the advantage of the Ukrainians. I, there are arguments either way. I mean, it's not—it's not really clear whose military advantage it was, but it was very damaging psychologically and economically. I mean, that was a—that was a, you know, it was thanks the to the dam that the ir- irrigation and, yeah. systems all over Ukraine were run yeah, out there. Yeah,
3: yeah. My, my sense is that we're now at—I mean, this is a stalemate that we're at right now, a kind of a classic stalemate. The one glimmer of hope is that you have these bridgeheads that have been established on the other side. Of the Dnieper River, but even those seem like they're unlikely to be a sustainable tactical advantage for the Ukrainians. At at this point, is there anything that you see plausible that could break the stalemate?
2: So, first of all, stalemate is a the problem with the word stalemate is that it implies that nothing is happening. You know, and actually a lot is happening. It's very dynamic, people are fighting all the time. And it could still go either way very fast. So, uh, even as we're speaking, I mean, people are shooting each other. So it's not, it's not as if they're stuck staring at each other across some trench. I mean, there are things that could happen. I mean, there's. Wait,
3: wait, wait. Just on that point, Anne, it, it, it doesn't it seem, though, that they're fighting kind of tree line by tree line, that the increments of success at this stage have shifted from where they were maybe months ago, where they were fighting for cities. And now it's really fighting over very small increments.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's fair enough. I'm just saying that it could tip one way or the other. I mean, should, for example, the United States fail to continue aiding Ukraine, and should the Ukrainians run out of ammunition in the next few weeks, then the Russians might make progress yep. very yep. fast. That's all well, I Well,
0: let's talk about yeah. that support for this war in Congress. We're, we're, where does the speaker stand on it now?
2: So I'm, I spent the last two days talking to people about this. And as far as I can tell, the Republicans are willing to pass something, but only in exchange for what the speaker has described as a transformational change in border policy. Ah, And so everybody has to guess what that is.
0: I can guess it's our southern border.
2: It's our southern border.
0: It's <laughs> okay. our southern border. There we um, go.
2: And these are of course not related issues. The war in Ukraine is not related to the southern border. But they the the Republicans have decided to use it as a as leverage. That you know, they understand the administration wants this package passed. And what's perplexing to me is that even senators who profess themselves to be very pro-Ukrainian, who understand what's at stake, who understand why a loss would be so so disastrous for Europe, but also for us. Even they have decided to go along with this weird performative thing that, you know, we need to fix our border and then we can fix Ukraine. It sounds like um, today's and it, it makes me wonder party. how serious a country we are.
3: Yeah. You know, and it it's shocking. It's shocking to see the likes of Susan Collins, who styles herself such a moderate, go along with this type of ploy. And it looks like Lisa Murkowski is uh, plausibly going along with it as well.
0: What do they want to do to the Southern, with the Southern border? Because we could use, there things we should be doing with the Southern border and our immigration system that really does require a lot of resources. Like, you know, if you come into this country, how, how long is it before you're adjudicated whether you can, you know, come in?
3: I mean, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but My sense is that the Biden administration had initially proposed making this type of connection between Ukraine, the border, and Israel. But really, with the border policy, it's not just border policies that are being changed. It's not just a matter of throwing more resources at the border and having more uh, customs and border patrol agents out there. It has to do with changes to the asylum system itself and right. I, I, there, there are centrist changes and changes that the Biden administration and Democrats could broadly accept as it relates to uh, asylum reform. But I think that what the Republicans are proposing
0: something different in
3: some instances goes too far in, in, in erasing parole for certain categories of migrants, more draconian policies than I think the administration probably would like to stomach in the end. But it, as you, I think as you're correctly pointing out, it's in the Democrats' interest on some level to have uh, increased funding for the border because the border is one of their greatest vulnerabilities in the coming election.
0: Yeah. and But the money, it, it depends where, where it goes. But uh, just the fact we spent this much more money on the border would be a, a good talking point, I guess Just, and
3: parenthetically, it's kind of crazy. it's also tied up with funding for for Israel's war and Netanyahu keeps talking about how he needs munitions, 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 which the Israelis, much like the Ukrainians, will begin to run low on. even Israel, which is this history of being this kind of sacrosanct bipartisan point of agreement. Isn't enough as an add on to push through this aid package.
0: One thing, uh, Anne, that you said that really struck me in the last time we spoke, which is, I don't know, just a couple months ago, which is that Russia is really pursuing a genocide uh, of Ukraine. They see Ukrainians as not legitimately Ukrainians and that they're Russians and that whenever they come into a town and take it, they kill those who are, or torture, and or both uh, those who are Ukrainian, clearly Ukrainian. So it doesn't feel like Ukraine, you were saying Ukraine will not stop fighting.
2: The Ukrainians can't stop fighting for exactly the reason you just said. So if they concede territory, What happens to the people on that territory, the mayors and local leaders and teachers and, you know, university professors are all arrested, concentration camps are created, people are tortured, children are kidnapped, there are thousands of children have been kidnapped from occupied Ukraine. It's not just about bits of land, you know, or some, you know, empty soil. It's about the people who live there. And so Ukrainians, you know, ceding territory for Ukraine means the loss of people, of of their own citizens. So they will fight with sticks and stones if they have to. I mean, I think towards the end. That doesn't mean they wouldn't ever negotiate about anything. I mean, I think there could be, you know, eventually there will be some kind of negotiation. But it's very also important to remember they have to have someone to negotiate with, right now, the Russians are not ready to negotiate. And on the contrary, the Russians think they're digging down, they're going to stay there. They think the US is weak and divided, which as we've just heard, you know, maybe it is, and they are going to stay. And so they are not interested in a frozen conflict or whatever, or a ceasefire or a truce. And so the the conversation about uh, negotiations is somewhat, it's kind of wishful thinking on the part of people who wish there was a diplomatic solution, but actually right now there isn't one
0: uh let, let's just for the sake of a, a year in review prigozhin of course who headed the wagner group uh went to overthrow <laughs> vladimir putin and uh that was that was his goal right
2: well no not clear actually i mean he went he was kind of protesting the way the war was being fought and he seems to have expected other people to join him i think he thought this was going to be a big operation come on everybody operation. Something yeah. like that, something yeah. like that, you know, <laughs> let's go, let's get, and he was and he was mostly talking about the heads of the army getting rid of them, mm-hmm. and then he they seemed to have not shown up when he called on them, and then Putin made a speech calling him a traitor, uh, which I think seems to have surprised him, and so he made this weird decision to turn back, which was um literally the kiss of death his His plane mysteriously crashed a few weeks later,
3: yeah. Wow. And just looking back on that retrospectively, was there any scenario, do you think, in which he could have succeeded if he'd kept on going?
2: I mean, I don't see how he could have taken Moscow with his 10,000 men, but boy, he could have caused a a lot of disruption and chaos. He could have changed the politics of Russia. Yes, I do think so.
0: So he could have gone out with a at least with, with a bang, a bang. yes. There could have been a scene, a you know, on
2: red on Red Square, and you know, a coup d'état and historic moment, and uh, you know, there could have been something more elaborate than than what happened, which is that they all turned around and went home.
0: How is Russia doing in terms of economically and and getting its weapons, and how has this been affecting them?
2: It's more stable now than it was before. Sanctions are. Not harming it as much as they were initially because so many other countries are collaborating and breaking the sanctions, you know, Turkey and China and India and and others. I mean, there is still there are weird problems with the economy. You know, there aren't enough young men, for example, to do jobs because so many of them have been mobilized. Quite a lot of the best educated people have left the country. It's a constant sense of instability, but they are they're they're getting a lot of weapons from Iran and from North Korea. Weapons and ammunition. And so far, that seems to be okay. I mean, as I said, one of the projects now is to make sure that they can't continue to make sophisticated weapons. And we may have some ability to block that. Weirdly, one of the problems with our sanctions has been that there's almost too many of them. And it's very hard to keep track of, you know, second and third level companies that are you know you sell something to the philippines and they sell it to azerbaijan and then they sell it to russia it's very hard to track that but we need to be tracking these are
0: component parts of of, we need to be
2: contracting exactly components the specific things that they need and i think we're getting a little better at that
0: uh how do the uh chinese view I'm, i'm making a segue uh view the war in ukraine and they don't send russians weapons but they do send component parts.
2: So the Chinese were uh, quite put off by the war. They didn't expect it. They didn't expect something of that scale. And they seem to be of two views. I mean, actually, their sort of political doctrine says countries aren't supposed to invade each other. They have this whole thing about sovereignty. Um, (laughs) Right.
0: Okay. Is Taiwan a country? Then no, Taiwan, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, well, that's that's <laughs> that's the joke. It's not. It's a <laughs>
2: province, right? Um, you know, and they're <clears> very. <throat> you know, it's made them very uncomfortable. I mean, she has some personal affinity for Putin. He also increasingly, and maybe this is where you want this conversation to go. And I'm sure Frank has views of this too. You know, he increasingly has a view of the world as there being these links between autocracies that need to defend themselves against liberal ideas and against the liberal world. And he sees Putin as his partner in that project. That's a kind of Chinese, Russian, Belorussian, Venezuelan, Iranian project. They're part of that together. He's so a
0: real be- dictator, right? I mean, he's yeah. like, like, he's a real communist.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure he's a Marxist, but yes, he's a Chinese communist, which is a different thing yeah i mean he's a he's a he's a dictator he controls a massive large country and he feels an affinity for other people who run similar kinds of political systems um and he would like more people to have that kind of system because then it's better for china and so the Chinese sell surveillance equipment to other dictatorships and they share their information systems with other dictatorships so they see very much themselves as part of this system of not necessarily ideologically compatible dictatorships, but ones that have some interests in common.
0: Okay. I um, did bring up Taiwan. What, what is the status of Taiwan? We don't call, the United States doesn't call Taiwan a country, right?
3: Just to step back on the China question uh, a little bit. I mean, I think if you went back maybe to the beginning of the Biden administration, there was within conventional wisdom, a sense that China was riding high. And as soon as it got on the other side of its pandemic lockdowns, its economy would revive. And during 2021, you had the Pelosi visit to Taiwan. And then you had all the fallout from that over time, where it seemed like hostilities between the US and China were really ramping up. But kind of at the end of this year, as we look back, it feels like. The major storyline as it relates to China is that the economy there did not simply go back to where it was before the lockdown. In fact, in a big there were way. problems with the Chinese economy before the lockdown that have now been exacerbated in the form of various bubbles within the Chinese economy. You know, Joe Biden likes to uh, very furiously say he wouldn't want to trade places with Xi because of all the the many vulnerabilities that she faces as it relates to his economic precariousness. And even though China continues to buzz Taiwan and to to do, I think, very aggressive things, it it, it feels a bit like the threat there is maybe a little bit less imminent than it had seemed at the beginning of the year. The beginning of the Um, year
0: was the, the balloon, of course.
3: Yeah. You look at China's role in this latest Mideast crisis, where I think at the beginning of the year, you had uh, China brokering rapprochement between the Saudis and the Iranians. And it looked like they were trying to make a major play for subsuming the historic role that the United States had played in the region. But as it relates to this conflict, I mean, China made noises at the beginning but they've kind of been nowhere to be seen it's an interesting data point as it relates to which conflict you're talking about israel and gaza yeah yeah, yeah. yeah yeah
0: they're nowhere to be seen now now it wasn't israel it wasn't netanyahu looking at trying to normalize relations with saudi arabia before this attack
3: yeah that's right and it should be said Israel is actually a major tra- trading partner with China, which is one of the reasons why China hasn 't taken advantage of the conflict in order to beef up its relations with the arab world
0: and to what extent does Israel trade with russia?
3: It does, but I think that they're pretty profoundly alienated from russia i mean I, I, as, as Anne uh, knows kind of painfully that it was the, the Israelis were reluctant to Embrace the Ukrainian cause. Um, they have all sorts of oligarchs, both Russian and Ukrainian, who count Tel Aviv as a primary secondary residence, and Putin and Net- Netanyahu have some sort of affinity for one another. and uh-huh. um, but but, but, I think only now, in the aftermath of this war and uh, Putin's reluctance to condemn Hamas has that really sunk in in Israel that. Russia
0: is not their friend. Uh, uh, what are some of the other issues between China? Uh, there must be there are military issues, right? And even coordinating or like doing war games or that kind of stuff. Or am I barking up the wrong tree here?
2: You mean with Russia?
0: No, with China, with, with the US. Not war games, but informing each other of what they're doing and that kind of thing. I thought there was a period during this year where the Chinese wouldn't even do that.
3: I mean, one thing that I think has happened is that uh, in in the U.S.-China relationship that has been fairly broken is that you have all of these diplomats and officials who normally would be the primary conduits for conducting diplomatic relations with the U.S. or military-to-military relations with the U.S. And because of the political atmosphere back in China, which is so as you said, communist. And because there's this sense that everybody needs to suck up to Xi, I think for a long time, the US found it very infuriating to have these lower level conversations with the Chinese because they were just occasions for reciting regime talking points or occasions for trying to embarrass US officials. And that's why the Biden-Xi relationship exists on this separate sorts of planes in that Biden and Xi have needed to you know, at these moments where the relationship looks like it's about to go out, off over the guardrails, uh, they've needed to to set up these leader-to-leader conversations where they fall back on this relationship that they've had over the last couple decades in order to have more of not not a friendly conversation, but more of a real conversation where they're able to get past some of the posturing. We're
0: gonna take a quick break. We're gonna be right back with Ann Applebaum and Frank Ford.
4: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: We're back with Frank Four and Anne Applebaum. Well, uh, let's, let's go to Israel. Can either start with Netanyahu and his relationship to the Palestinian Authority and, and Hamas In terms of playing them against each other, or I could go to the judiciary and the Knesset's attempt to overhaul the judicial system. So so
2: that, until October the seventh, that was the story in Israel. I mean, I actually went there last summer to report on it, and then wound up using it unexpectedly after October the seventh. But most of what was happening in Israel, you know, for for the first nine months of the year was Netanyahu fighting with a large part of the public and the public organizing these massive weekly demonstrations You know, in all kinds of creative ways led by army reservists and the tech industry.
0: I have a, uh, an excerpt of something you wrote which uh, really struck me, and I'll read it here. After the surprise Hamas attack on southern Israel earlier this month, this is you talking, a writing. I listened again to tapes of those conversations, conversations you had with Israelis during the judicial protests. In almost every one of them, there was a warning note that I didn't pay enough attention to at the time. When I asked people why they had sacrificed their time to join a protest movement, they told me it was because they feared Israel could become not just undemocratic, undem- but unrecognizable unwelcoming to them and their families. But they also talked about a deeper fear that Israel could cease to exist at all. The deep, angry divide in Israeli politics, divides that are religious and cultural, but that were also deliberately created by Netanyahu and his extremist allies for their political and personal benefit, weren't just a problem for some liberal or secular Israelis. The people I met believe the polarization of Israel was an existential risk for everybody that really struck me as very profoundly sad frank what to what extent has netanyahu's the way he has played this for all his years there in terms of doing everything he can to prevent a two state solution
3: I think even more cynically and even more horrifically, he's consistently sacrificed the national interest in order to preserve and extend his political career.
0: Which I think he's continuing to do today in how he conducts the war.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's not just the conduct of the war. It has to do with what will follow the war. Because Gaza is, is going to be, in some level, an ungovernable Disaster when the war is over, and the question is: Is what happens to that pile of rubble when this is over? Will all of Israel's sacrifices in the course of this war culminate in some sort of better future, um, and in some sort of scenario that would prevent a reprise of October seventh? And and I think at the end, that requires Israel to have some sort of plan for you know, what follows Hamas. If if eviction of Hamas is indeed ultimately possible,
0: and and is it possible is another question.
3: I think it's very difficult to say. I find it hard to get a sense of exactly how well the prosecution of the war is going. According to Israel, they've killed about five thousand Hamas fighters out of we think somewhere between twenty and thirty thousand Hamas fighters. Uh, in terms of the decimation of Hamas's leadership, we know at the very least that Yahya Sinwar, the head of the political head of Hamas within Gaza, is still there. You don't hear lots of reports of Hamas commanders being taken out.
0: And, and by killing so many civilians with the bombing, and these are women and children and, and men, uh, but I don't know what the totals, real totals are. I think Hamas has about 15 or 16,000, maybe more. Uh, other estimates I've heard are lower. But it's a ghastly bargain to say that's how many civilians we have to kill, innocents we have to kill. I mean, Hamas embeds itself with civilians, and they want as many people killed, I think, as possible to discredit. Israel, but it's horrible to watch this. Without a doubt. So you're saying after this is over, Netanyahu now has, is going on trial, right? For a number of his charges.
3: Right. It's At some point, that'll happen. At some point, his political future will be imperiled. I mean, I think that's something that there's very broad agreement on, that on the other side of this war, if not sooner his political career will come to an end. There's simply too much resentment aimed at him for all the ways in which he left his country vulnerable. I mean, the fact that the New York Times now has uh, this memo that the Israelis prepared that saw the entire attack coming, and it's not necessarily just Netanyahu's fault, or maybe not even uh, Netanyahu's fault in particular, that The military failed to make preparations, but it was clearly symptomatic of a broader breakdown that uh, allowed one of the greatest disasters in Israel's history to have occurred.
2: Yeah. And and as I wrote, you know, many people relate this breakdown to his arrogance, to his attempt to undermine Israel's liberal constitution, to create not exactly a dictatorship, but a sort of a more autocratic Israel, you know, to do deals with extremists who were exacerbating and worsening the relationship with the Palestinians. I mean, all of that was part of the lead up to this war.
0: And what was the motivation to do that? That's what I want to know. I mean, so he got behind the settlers. Well, good.
2: I mean he wanted to stay, you know, so he didn't want to go to jail he wanted to make sure that you know the court system was friendly to him he wanted to keep together his extremist coalition so the the Israeli Supreme Court had in the past not always not necessarily very effectively or very well but they did sometimes interfere with more extreme measures taken in the occupied territories in the West Bank and and, and Gaza and they wanted a free hand there they didn't want the courts to Prevent them from doing whatever they wanted to do. So there were several different reasons why people wanted the court system constrained, and Netanyahu decided to make that a, you know central piece of his government.
3: In in out faced with a choice at the beginning of this war, Netanyahu could have formed a coalition government, which would have required him to ditch the settlers and the religious zealots and made common cause with the center of Israeli politics, and it would have probably been the end of Netanyahu's political career, but it would have been the honorable thing to do. Because as this war has gone on, it's been his allies, uh, his coalition partners who've said some of the more atrocious things about Palestinians and about the war in Gaza that get thrown in Israel's face and all these accusations about genocide that emerge from the international left. And also, they're just a bunch of incompetence. I mean, his foreign minister, his communications minister, all these people are incapable of engaging in the strategic thinking, in the careful diplomacy that would put Israel in a better position at the other side of this war. And the fact that he's continued to stick with these people, even though he's, I guess, he admitted... um, into a a war cabinet, which is not the same thing as a a coalition government. Mm -hmm. That failure is going to be something that his country could pay a deep price for.
0: One of the things I, I noticed that in the hostage exchange, that a number of the prisoners that Israel released were women, and even I think some children, who had not been charged. Did you notice that? Yes. What does that say about Israel, and what does it say about Netanyahu? What does it say about the lurch to the right, which has been going on for years? And is that a population thing? Is it that the very orthodox and right-wing settlers are just uh, have more children? And why why is Israel gone this way?
2: I mean, I think there's a there's a combination of things. One is yes, the number of ultra orthodox, uh, you know, is much larger than it was at the time of Israel's founding, um, and they have a, a view of the world that's specific to them and which is not shared by the the liberal and even the centrist population. You know, most Israelis, when I ask them about this, they cite the the turning point was the failure of the Oslo Agreement. You know, there was an attempt to create mm-hmm. peace in the 1990s. There was an attempt to negotiate. And it was the end, the failure of that, the so-called second intifada, the fact that it proved impossible to negotiate some kind of solution that led a lot of people to say, right, okay, all those peace ideas, you know, all those two-state solution ideas, none of it worked. It's a failure. And I think a lot of Israelis, even those who aren't ultra-Orthodox or aren't far-right, lost faith in, in that possibility. That's not the only explanation, but it kind of laid the groundwork for what we've seen in the last decade.
3: One other explanation is that Israel simply became a prosperous society that felt less pressure to pursue a peace process or to revive a peace process, even after the Second Intifada, even after Hud Olmert made his extraordinary offer to the Palestinians that was rejected. But I think one of the things that could happen in the aftermath of this war is that as I talk to more uh, centrist Israelis, They have a sense that Netanyahu's settler coalition partners were somehow at least partially responsible for Israel's security vulnerabilities. And seen as as such. In in that in the aftermath of this war, there's going to need to be some sort of reckoning reckoning with the Palestinian (laughs) question that Israel has neglected for the last 15 years or so. That's what happened in the aftermath of the 1973 war, which is something that people point to Israel made peace with its historic adversaries, and that at the end of a conflict like this, that takes so much out of a country, takes so much out of its adversaries, you do have renewed possibilities for peace.
0: I've been, and maybe I don't know exactly what's going on in this regard, but I, I've been heartened by seeing this thing not spread throughout the region. Is is that? the case thus far? I mean, has Hezbollah firing missiles and rockets in every once in a while, or has that been somehow successful for a reason I don't understand?
3: I mean, I think it's successful in part because the Americans communicated pretty clearly to Iran by sending carrier (laughs) groups into the region. And I think it's also uh, probably just not in Iran's Cold interest to have a regional war at this point, I mean, I think that if Hezbollah launched a northern front against Israel, it would provide Netanyahu with the pretext or the the, the opportunity to strike Iran's nuclear facilities, which is something that Iran probably doesn't want to see happen. The Iranian regime has its own vulnerabilities at, at this point, and but I agree with you it's um it's an accomplishment um it's something that the world can congratulate itself on at the end of this year that this conflict didn't spiral out of control which it very well could have
2: i am told that biden administration has also asked the israelis not essentially don't go to war with hezbollah they've played a role on both sides trying to you know tamp down the possibility of a of a spread of the conflict
0: so does biden and and tony blinken do they get some credit here
3: I mean I think so. I think that uh you know it's, it's still probably premature to be attributing credit for what happens here since we we, have, we we don't know. But I think that the way that Biden has managed Netanyahu, the way in which he banked so much emotional and political capital with Netanyahu, which was also a genuine expression of his own Zionism, have allowed him to ultimately manage the conflict at key moments. I think the release of the hostages was a genuine accomplishment and whatever diplomacy went into preventing the uh, escalation of a regional conflict is indeed a genuine accomplishment.
0: Uh, Well, let's, let's answer my last uh, question that I I wanted to have, which is, is the world getting more democratic or more autocratic? And you're in in Washington, D.C., Today, but sometimes when I talk to you, you're in Poland. Yes, and Poland had a what you'd call a good year.
2: Yep, Poland had a good year. Um, Poland uh, had an election, which, thanks to a huge turnout and lots of young women voting, threw a increasingly autocratic ruling party out of power. It hasn't, as we're speaking, it hasn't quite finished yet. We don't have a new government yet, but it did happen, and so that proves it's possible. But I mean, unfortunately. Lots of people have said to me, well, you know, if it weren't for Poland, there would be no good news. We do live in a world where, as I as I said before, you know, the autocracies work together in new ways across ideologies and across geographies. Uh, you know, there's a you know weird links between Putin and Hamas. He invited Hamas to Moscow before October the seventh, and also since then, he's clearly tried to take advantage both of the conflict and of the emotions that the conflict has created in Europe and in the U.S anything that's bad for the us or is bad for the democratic world he sees as good for him and he has allies inside the democratic world who will also you know both on the far right and the far left who will who will help him create chaos and but it's not just him he directly supports venezuela venezuela is directly connected to cuba um Cuba is connected to Nicaragua, you know these are also, you know, autocracies that work together, you know, there's a similar kind of network in Europe between Russia and Belarus and this is now how that world operates, you know, they share surveillance technology, they share information technology, the corrupt businesses in one country do deals with the corrupt businesses in another country. It's increasingly a consistent system and I don't think we've quite figured out how to deal with it, you know, how to how to think about it and what kind of new diplomacy is, is necessary.
3: When Biden came to office, he defined his presidency as being a battle between democracy and autocracy that would occur both domestically and abroad. And just to circle back, it does seem striking how the dysfunction at home really is hurting the ability to fight the war for democracy abroad. And that looking forward to the year 2024 and the ways in which the crisis of American democracy could obviously become much much worse the atlantic
0: monthly your magazine should write something about that
3: we did we oh, yeah. had no it would be worthy of a special issue i think
0: <laughs> yeah that's what i was going to say well oh, that'll be a long time coming oh it's out this week
2: it's out this week <laughs> 24 essays including one by me and one by frank about What will happen if Trump wins?
3: Do you want the spoiler alert? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) It's not good? I mean,
2: you may find a way to flourish
3: in autocracy. The rest of us are not likely to.
0: Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, guys. Uh, That was a good trip around some of the hot spots of the world, and I couldn't have done it with two better folks. Uh, so, see you next time, okay?
3: Until until happier times. Until
2: happier times, yes.
3: Yes, yes.
0: Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week.
1: Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show The Swan.